Money Review podcast, the future of money in 30 minutes. I'm Paul Amory, the editor of New Money Review. Money is a form of communication, like writing, music and art. It goes back to the origins of human history. And now money is changing fast, in a way that will affect all our lives. New types of money arrive out of nowhere, like Bitcoin and cryptocurrency. Payments get faster, cheaper and digital. But as some things get easier, others become more complex. Some people are at risk of being excluded from the new world of money, those using cash. There's increasing concern about what happens to our payments data, probably the most valuable digital records of all. In some areas of money, criminals and fraudsters are having the time of their lives. So when using new forms of money, how do we know if we're at risk of being scammed? Where do all these changes leave our traditional money, our dollars, pounds, euros and yen? What's the role of governments and central banks in this new world? And what about the big tech firms like Google, Apple, Facebook and the Chinese tech giants Alipay and WeChat who are moving quickly into money? The New Money Review podcast takes a big picture look at all these trends and at their impact on society. It's not just money that's changing, but technology, finance, law, government and culture with it. Each episode, we interview a leading expert on one or more of these topics. By listening to the podcast, you can stay up to date with what's going on in money. If you enjoyed this podcast, please like it and share it with your friends and network. Your recommendations will help us grow. My guests on this episode of the podcast are two people I've invited to talk about the lightning fast changes that are happening in our payment system. These changes are something most people don't know, let alone care about. But according to Gottfried Leibbrand and Natasha de Terran, they should. Gottfried and Natasha are the former chief executive and head of communications, respectively, at SWIFT. SWIFT has been described as the financial world's nervous system. It's the messaging network that's at the heart of global money flows. And Gottfried and Natasha have now written a book called The Payoff, explaining why we should all pay attention to what's going on in payments. Listen in for the next 30 minutes to find out why. Gottfried and Natasha, welcome to the new Money Review podcast. I've recently been reading your book, The Payoff, which is uh, being published on July the 1st. The the Payoff, How Changing the Way We Pay Changes Everything is the subtitle. Uh, Gottfried, why does changing the way we pay change everything? Because it touches so many aspects of what we do. It's it's one of those things, it's it's plumbing to some extent. You only notice it when it doesn't work. Um, And yet when it doesn't work, you realize how much of it it permeates our lives and how much uh, we, we depend on it. Um, we use it for everyday transactions. We trust it with our data. We expect it to work whenever, whenever we are. We expect it to be instant everywhere, uh, etc. Um, now, there have always been areas where it worked well. Other areas where it's it's more difficult uh, to to make a payment. Um, but in all those areas, the, the the technology, the plumbing, is changing faster than ever before. I've been in the industry for 30 years now, and I can say that I, it, it has never changed as fast as it does right now. And I also would be very hard pressed to make any predictions um, on where it will be even five years from now. Um, and, it, and it will change things like who's in charge. It will change things like where's your data kept. It will change things like, like what purchases can you make? How is credit extended? Um, how are those decisions made? Um, so uh, we thought or it, it, it is such a fascinating topic that uh, it, it really is worth sharing with the world. And it's something you should know about or, or the average citizen should know about, given, given how many aspects of our daily life it's, uh, it touches. And, and yeah, how it changes thank, 
Yeah. Natasha, in the book, you, you, you and Gottfried write that money and payments are too important a subject to be left in the hands of specialists. So, so why should the general um, listener or reader um, be paying more attention to the subject? Because every part of our lives depends on payments working. If you think our societies would really grind to a complete and utter standstill if payments ceased to function. Um, so we don't, I don't think the average citizen needs to understand the depths of the plumbing necessarily, although we think it'd be fascinating, we think it's fascinating enough that they might want to. Um, but it's, it's this incredibly important part of our lives and the way that societies function that we never stop to think about. And that, that isn't really discussed outside the, the kind of payment nerd world. Um, in the same way that, say, you know, the rail system or the, you know, the transport system or the electricity grid and, and so forth, the payment system is as important, if not more, because all of those other things would cease to function without payments. So we're going through a period of profound change in payments. To what extent are the the risks increasing, uh, Gottfried, uh, as a result of the, the on, ongoing changes? Well, the risks, I mean, let's first, what, what is changing? There are a couple of things, big things changing. One is the technology is changing. Um, we, we move from, from old, the payments technologies have changed for a while now. If you remember credit cards, people used to make paper slip copies of credit cards. Uh, then we moved to MaxDrive. Uh, then we put chips on them. Now they're wireless and in many cases embedded in your phone and there isn't even this piece of plastic anymore. So... One, one thing that's changing is the technology. The other thing that's changing is who provides it. It used to be more or less the bank's prerogative to provide payments uh, services. They ran the plumbing, uh, et cetera. All sorts of new players are, are entering it. I think the geopolitics of it is, is changing. Uh, it used to be uh, many of the large players used to be Western or even Anglo-Saxon in the case of the credit card networks, for example. Uh, the, the rise of China is something to discuss as well in, in payments. Uh, right now, more most of all electronic payments are made in just one country, in China. China makes more electronic payments than all the rest of the world combined, just to, to, to give one, one factoid. Um, so the, 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 the geopolitics is changing, the players are changing, the technology is changing. With that, are the risks increasing? Uh, well, the risks are certainly changing as well. Um, I think the risk of, of countries not agreeing with each other and therefore payments not flowing is, uh, is, is, is happening. I think the risk of data leakage is increasing. Uh, cyber becomes increasingly relevant. Say data leakage is increasing everywhere, but in payments that, that happens as well. We can see these credit card numbers being stolen on a massive scale. We saw in, in some instances a few years ago. Um, so I, I do think that these, these risks are... are at least changing shape, and there are many new risks being being introduced. Um, some of them are not specific to payments. We we see everywhere now that we're getting out of COVID, we are realizing how fragile our supply chains are, how many choke points there are. I found yesterday that there that the refrigerators are in short supply. I hadn't realized that, but my local merchant said. If your refrigerator works, be grateful because we can't get any any of them. We can't right. even order them right now. So we are realizing how fragile global supply chains are, and I think payments is no exception to that. It's 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 a very complex ecosystem, and that by nature yeah. introduces fragility. Yeah. So uh, Natasha, to what extent has the coronavirus pandemic accelerated uh, developments in this area? 
Well, I mean, so I think pretty much everywhere it's, it's precipitated the move or accelerated the move away from cash and brought more people into online shopping and therefore digital payments, but also electronic payments when they could have been using cash. And on the retailer side or the merchant side, um, it's sort of accelerated a move away from cash acceptance. But if I could, can I just go back to the to the risk question? Because I think yeah. another sort of much ignored risk is We've got a lot of choice. Now, I'm of an age that, you know, when I was a child, I could have coins and I could have a post office gyro savings account book. Yeah. And that was it. There was no other way for me to handle money yeah. and to pay. But now I've got a million choices and no one teaches me anything about those choices. And in fact, if I go and try and buy a payment instrument online, I'm not actually going out there to buy a payment instrument, I'm going there to buy a means to transact, which is slightly different. But I won't actually find the risks clearly explained to me in those different things, whereas I knew when I took money out of my gyro bank um, that I immediately had to spend it on sweets in the post office so I didn't lose it. Um, so it was yeah. a very simple transaction. There was, there was really no risk. But there is risk when I'm carrying around a £100 contactless debit card which has been slipped into my wallet over my lifetime without me ever making a choice about it. Yeah. So now the average person walks down the street or when, when the, the limit goes up to £100 in the UK is probably carrying four cards in their wallet, four of them being contactless and four of them having a £100 credit limits. So they're not carrying £20 to go to the newsagent to buy their milk and newspaper. They're carrying £400. Yeah. So there's, there's risks like that that aren't, people aren't thinking through because of the way that we as citizens approach payments. And, and also, sorry to interrupt you. If they put Google Pay or Apple Pay on their phones and someone can manage to use their phone to pay, then there's there's much much higher limit. They can, you know, they potentially can be, yeah. So there's more money at risk. Which isn't something that people necessarily think about. And I think when we think about the risk of payments, payments are used by everybody. You know, yeah. a five-year-old child and, and an 80-year-old man. Um and they might have very varying le le levels of education yeah. uh, and awareness of what, you know, the risks that they're carrying when they're paying. And that's before we even get into the topic of whether the money is a safe being on a debit card issued by an e-money institution uh, yeah. as compared to being a deposit right. in a bank account or cryptocurrency. Um, you know, these are all, I mean, theoretically ways of paying for something and they're, they're completely different in risk profile. Yeah. So that, that choice itself is, is introducing risk to the, to the consumer that they're not really aware of. Yeah. Uh, one, of, one of the things you wrote at the end of your book, uh, the, the last couple of chapters on regulation, I found really interesting. Um, you you po pointed out that payments at the same time are one of the most highly regulated segments of the global financial system and paradoxically one of the, one of the least at the same time. How is that possible? Gottfried, perhaps you could explain what you meant by that. Well, on the one hand, many, many aspects are regulated, partly because they're provided by banks. Uh, but what is not regulated is how we pay. How we pay between, between us is our free choice. If we are to pay each other in Bitcoin, which is beyond any regulation or, or whatever, we are free to do so at the end of the day. So, um, and, and we are seeing many new providers entering uh, who, are, who are not regulated, who are beyond the grasp of, of regulators, at least of the country in which the people... Uh, transactors operate um, so there that that part is is free of regulation we can we can pay each other in seashells if we want to in bitcoin or whatever we, we choose at the end of the day 
So I think that's yeah. what we meant by the, the unregulated part. Yeah. So how how uh, how well equipped are governments to cope with what's going on? Because you also point out in one of the later chapters, I think you give the examples of the US and, and the EU and maybe also the UK. That there are many different agencies involved in the UK. For example, you've got the Bank of England, the Financial Conduct Authority, the Payment Services Regulator. Then you've got the people looking after the security of the electronic networks as well. I mean, how can they possibly have a joined up approach to to what's going on? I think that varies by country, though. In in some countries, it's it's clear. In other countries, it's more fragmented. Um, I can take my own country, the the Netherlands, where uh, the central bank has actually jumped on the question of what's going to happen when cash is going to disappear. And and to get back to the previous point, one, I think the COVID COVID has triggered the debate uh, about cash. Uh, we are for the first time starting to think about what happened. What actually happens if cash were to disappear altogether? And uh, because yeah. It's going down so fast. And you see people starting to struggle with, okay, if they're a world without cash, what does that mean for groups that are still dependent on it? What does it mean for people who still rely on cash? And we, we see local ATMs disappear out of small villages. We see merchants no longer accepting it. There are groups like the elderly. There are groups like, like the physically impaired who still rely on cash because it has it has some characteristics that makes it friendly for, for blind people, etc., what will happen in a, in a world without cash? How, how is that going to work? Um, I think in the Netherlands, we've seen the, the central bank jump on that debate and indeed commission work to have that examined. What's it going to look like? How's, how are we going to manage that? Um, what's the timing of it? What measures do we need to take to assure that, that it's still available? So I think, I think it depends by, by country. Central banks clearly see this as their turf. You can also see that in, in the flurry of publications around central bank digital currencies that, that is coming out of, of central banks right now. So it, it is fragmented on one hand, but I do think that, that many central banks are, are seeing at the end of the day payments as their, certainly cash, because they issue it as their, yeah. as their thing, so to speak. But so the central, banks are, kind of, the, the central banks are leading the, the, the way on, on research in this area? I think they are. Uh, yeah. yeah. Definitely in the CBDC. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I, mean, I think there's a huge amount of more focus today on payments from across the regulatory, financial regulatory spectrum than there ever has been, I think. Um, but I think there's, there are some things outside their purview which complicates their work. So digital inclusion, financial education, digital literacy, data poverty. You, you can do the best CBDC in the world if you think that's the answer. But if you have people that can't or won't, uh, you know, get digitally enabled, then it, it isn't a solution for probably some of the people that you're, you're trying hardest to reach. Yeah, and there's so, a discussion around consumer protection, right? Predatory lending and, and uh, yeah. credit decisions that they aren't aware of where they, they're actually being extended credit at the point of sale, et cetera. Yeah. yeah. Another interesting trend you point out in your book is that um, you, you, uh, you say that digital, the, tr the shift to digital payments is boosting financial inclusion in developing countries, but heightening the risk of financial exclusion in advanced economies. So is the shift to digital payments kind of leveling the global playing field? <laughs> well, that's an interesting one. You, I, I think the global playing field is being leveled. It's almost akin to the discussion. We, we see the inequality at a global level decreasing as we raise all these countries out of poverty but we see inequality in the Western world increasing. So it's, it's maybe a bit of that same paradox where mm -hmm. indeed in the, in, in the third world, inclusion has made tremendous uh, uh, progress 
the, the figure that sticks in my mind is we've gone from a third having access to financial services to two thirds of the population having access in just seven or eight years. And all of that is thanks to mobile technology that has penetrated the developing world like, like wildfire and comes with the ability to, to, to make uh, payments or do financial transactions. That's a mind boggling, I mean, that's a mind boggling yeah. uh, scale of change. Um, and indeed in the Western world, we now face the cash discussion. Yeah. yeah. Let's talk a bit about uh, China. You mentioned earlier that China has gone down a, a different path in digital payments to um, the the US and countries that have that resemble the US in in the way that they pay. Could you talk a little bit about how 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 things are different in in China, how the technology differs, and what the implications of that are? Yeah. So, in, in, and again, the background for me, the, the the piece of background is if you ask the Chinese tech companies what they think about Silicon Valley, they say, well, around around 2014, we stopped going there because there was nothing to learn for us there. Um, right. We're inventing our own, and I think the same is happening in payments. They have in in certain areas with the two giants, Alipay and, and WeChat with TenPay, they they have. Uh, plowed a path, which is very different from the Western world. Um, they've given everybody wallets, but they've made it extremely low cost. Um, so, so compared to a card transaction in the Western world, which costs a merchant between 2 and 3%, Alipay and Tenpay cost a couple of a couple of basis points at the end of the day, uh, so 0.1 or 0.2%. So it's a much cheaper pen, uh, proposition for, for merchants. Perhaps as a result, and, and the fact that they're extremely savvy uh, tools for mobile, etc., they have they have taken China by storm. And as I said, per head of the population, the Chinese now, I think the average Chinese makes more than one payment a day on Alipay or, or Tenpay. And just to put that in perspective, I think in the Western world, people make a card transaction once every three or four days uh, or even yeah. even twice a week or something. So the penetration is much higher. What's also new is that from the start, banks have been completely excluded. It, it's it's mm-hmm. peer-to-peer, if you want, uh, for these for these platforms. Now, some of that has come, come home to roost. Uh, they, they are clearly now facing a, a regulator that is waking up and realizing what's happened and trying to claw their way back in. Uh, but it's it's developed into a completely different ecosystem and, and uh, on, on a scale which is almost unimaginable in, in the West. And there's no underlying card. So where there's no representation of a card such as we have in Google Pay or Samsung or Apple Pay. It's a, it's a separate peer-to-peer no, system the, using Q, QR codes or... QR codes. The phys- if there is a yeah. physical part, it's a QR code, which can either be generated yeah. on the mobile phone or printed out. And, and there are cases of... of, of food stalls that have the QR code printed out and slapped to the side of the stall. There are even beggars who are sporting QR codes. <laughs> you can yeah. make a donation to a beggar using their QR code. Yeah. So so this the, the, the fact that this is um, developed completely separately from the Western card-based payment system and is operating at a, with a bigger scale already and with higher throughput, you know, does this, um, Natasha, set us up for a big geopolitical clash? Uh, I know that David Birch, who I've interviewed on this podcast, has talked about the coming currency cold war between China and the US. He's painted uh, very much, uh, you know, a, 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 really a clash of ideologies between the two systems. Is that over-dramatizing things, or do you think that's an ac- accurate representation of what's happening? Gosh, well, gosh, there's a lot bundled into that question, <laughs> I think. Um, I, I don't see, let's say, Europe... I, I don't see Europe allowing um, 
the same sort of thing to happen in Europe as has happened in China. Uh, nor do I see Europe opening the doors to its citizens becoming that dependent on foreign providers again. Um, because Europe is very dependent on two card network providers, which are not European, and it's um, the EU certainly is not thrilled about that. Yeah. Um, but it's, I mean, it's a matter of complete indifference to me how they pay in China, because I live in Britain, and principally I pay people in Britain, uh, not in China. Um, so it, I, it'll be at the cross between currencies and countries that there's probably going to be a fight for the next thing. Uh, and just because China has a good domestic payment network or an efficient one doesn't necessarily mean that it will have the best means of transacting internationally. Yeah. I think what it does have is it has the economic diaspora. It has the trades, uh, trade power yeah. that could help it develop the next system if there is to be a next one. Um, but I, th I think we are in in a sort of payment cold war at the moment already, really. Yeah. And, and any, maybe, any thoughts on the geopolitics? Yeah, maybe to, we should also talk about data because the two Chinese platforms gather data at an unprecedented yeah. scale and they use that data to make credit decisions, cross-selling, uh, offer you other yeah. things. I mean, there's a, and that's part of what got them, got them into trouble. Um, and, and all of those practices would not be allowed under European data privacy uh, law. Um, and so, so I think there's that aspect as well to think about. Data is where payments are becoming increasingly data intensive, and a source of data for for other commercial purposes. And that tends to play out differently in China than than Europe, for starters, mm -hmm. and perhaps the US as well. Yeah, you mentioned in the book that Europe may be going down the route of uh, India in in tying payments in future to digital identity. Why is that? Uh, why is tying payments to, to uh, a single digital identity framework so important? Well, what Europe and India both are doing is is um, keeping the keeping the bank account and allowing very easy access to that bank account by third parties through APIs. And in India, that's called UPI. In Europe, it's called PSD2, if you want. But it's a model whereby outside players, fintech players, payment service providers, etc., can initiate payments quite easily, inject them into the banking system. So the customer keeps their bank account, but all the transactions are being held by, by uh, or processed by other parties, uh, if you will. That's the commonality between uh, India and, uh, and Europe. I think in India, they've, they've added in there the universal identity that they have. That's a fairly yeah. unique uh, India thing, the Aadhaar uh, part. And that allows you to identify people, not just by their bank account, but you can actually send it to their Aadhaar identity and, and it will find their way to the bank account. Um, I think in Europe, that's a bit more complicated because we do not have that, that identifier. Um, and if we had it, we probably don't want to make it public. We are much more cagey about using social security numbers, et cetera, than they are in India. Yeah. So, so I, I think that that's a very specific India part of the development. What is fascinating in Europe is the whole identity field and, and how it will develop. Um, how will people identify themselves electronically? Right now, you still yeah. have to send passport scans, etc. One of the ways to do that would be to reuse your bank identity because the bank knows who you are. The banks can authenticate you through the same mechanism that you use to authorize a payment. And I think there are quite some experiments going on in reusing your bank identity for signing documents or, or engaging into contracts with a telco provider or all of the type of things 
where you would use your proven bank identity, which is much easier than making a scan of a passport. If you need to. Yeah, yeah. Um, one of the um, one of the we were talking about the um, you know the the, the the major changes that are taking place, the the influence of new payments technology. At the same time, you say in your book that we are prisoners of geography in our existing payments habits, and that. Maybe we're quite old-fashioned uh, in, in the way we pay in certain parts of the world. The U.S. still has a heavy reliance on, on paper checks, uh, surprisingly. You know, uh, uh, is there a danger that we're getting ahead of ourselves um, in you know, this kind of tech utopia uh, in, in payments and, and ignoring the fact that people are, are still quite conservative? Natasha, do you have any you – know, is, is, is there a risk we're running ahead of ourselves in predicting what might happen in the future? Um, well, I, th- I think anyone that tries to predict too far into the future on payments is 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 bold, because things change. Things are so changeable, and you know the technologies that will inform tomorrow's payments might not even be ar- around today, or at least not yeah. used in, in the payments world. Um, I d- it can take. I mean, it can take a lo- an awful long time for things to get adopted and used. And I think contactless was introduced a ridiculously long time ago. But really, really took off. For instance, in the UK during during COVID, yeah. the, the amount of the amount of us actually using contactless has multiplied by several factors during that time. So there's an element of force um, which can be circumstantial, like COVID, but it can also be the people around us. So if I if I'm a stubborn cash user, but my ATM shuts down and my shop, the shops around here don't take it anymore, then I'll I'll stop using it. So it. That was what, what we were talking about, in a sense, with the prisoners of geography, that the payment instrument that you choose to use will be informed by those around you. Where that sort of it, e-commerce changes that somewhat, because yeah. I might be buying from abroad, in which case I need their system rather than my local system. Yeah. But the the um, you know the national interest in the, in the payment system that it functions, that it has control over it. Um, you know, if you, as a nation, you're, you're guaranteeing peace and prosperity to your to your citizens, but it's going to be difficult to do that without a payment system that you can make sure works. Yeah. Yeah. So I think those, the geographical interest in, in payments will survive. Yeah. Godfrey, any, any, any thoughts on, on that sort of historical legacy and what it means for how things well, the, evolve? The, what I've also also found interesting is that sometimes the legacy is is a burden. You've seen you've you've seen countries that that weren't very sophisticated in payments make, make almost leapfrog, if you will, yeah. um, technology. And China would be a good example. Uh, many uh, Africa would be a good example where people are jumping straight to to mobile technology and and skipping cards or, or transfers and all of that. Um, and to some extent, you you see countries that have a well established infrastructure being slower to move in the US with checks would be a good example. It, it's almost more difficult to change existing payment patterns than to introduce new I think ones. We've lost you. There isn't Godfrey, can you hear? It's, can it's you hear like me? houses, right? It's almost easier to build a new house than to remodel yeah. an existing one. Let, Natasha, Natasha let, let me ask you about the, um, the, remodeling. I'm sure you'll rejoin us. Let me ask you about the, um, Am I the, 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 the fintech boom? Um, you po- point out in the in the book that um, you know there's been some uh, you know a, a huge amount of interest in, in investment in payments. We've seen 
companies involved in payments raising money at very high valuations. Um, and payments revenue has been growing at twice the rate of other financial services during the last decade. But do you expect that, you know, this trend to continue? Or is there a, you know, are we kind of at the top of a boom that might turn into a, um, we might see a downturn as from, um, from gosh, current I, levels? I'm back. Sorry. I wouldn't want to be at the top or, or bottom of, of that market. But yeah. I think, I think the, Two of the things that would make us question some, that made us question or does make us question some of the um, the highfalutin assumptions are one that no one wants to pay to pay in the first place. Most people don't think they're paying to pay. Yeah. And they, they definitely are not enthusiastic about the, the possibility of paying to pay. Yeah. So you have to have hidden charges or you have to take your money, make your money some other way, i.e. through data, you know, through data or advertising being two alternatives. And there the opportunities might be limited by either our willingness to to have our data used for those purposes or by our government's appetite for for that being the case. But also, if you have a payment system that becomes, that, that the country becomes very reliant on, the economics of that payment system become incredibly important. Yeah. And you, it, it can't be a fragile base to support it. It has to have an economically sustainable base. So I, I think there'll be more look through to, to how, how, pay, how these providers are making their money. And if it's solely through the provision of credit, then that that raises some interesting questions because if we all st- we want to keep using the the payment system but not borrow, then how does the payment system continue being a payment system because it hasn't got its revenue? So it needs to change its revenue base, and then it won't be explicitly um, faced with payment charges. We might not want to use it. Um, so, and then, then the final thing is the geographic, you know, the idea that tech platforms, payment platforms, can really scale the globe. I think we we think some of the economies of scale that you can see in other parts of the tech industry might not be so realizable in payments. Yeah, yeah. It struck me in the book that you, you pointed out you know, two of the newer digital banks in the UK, Monzo and Revolut, that Monzo makes yearly revenue per customer of $7 and Revolut $10. They're not making much much return from their from what they're doing, and yet the, the, the valuations attached to some of these companies are you know, have been enormous. And... Uh, you know, we've seen some very high valuations placed on payment uh, startups and uh, relatively new companies in the last quarter or two. Well, it, it depends. It, it depends on how it plays out. We, yeah. we don't know. It may still live up to the expectations or it may not. That's, I guess, yeah. what, the, yeah. what the discussion yeah. is. And there's, there's you know, the possibility of buyouts. There's the, I mean, on the one hand, you have the winner-takes-all kind of network effects in payments that people are looking at on the one hand and the other there's the potential financial buyer for some of these some of these companies yeah um and, and um i just wanted to i know you you think it's changing very fast and it's very hard to forecast what's going to happen in the next uh a few years let alone the next decade but what um you know key areas of payments are you two focusing on Right now, like to try and work out what's going on, what you know, national initiatives you've focusing on most closely, or you know, which companies you're watching most closely, or which areas of the market. Godfrey, let, let me start with you. 
Yeah, for, for me, there are two areas that are that are most fascinating. I think one is the whole area of digital, of, of central bank digital currencies or other digital currencies is certainly one. Yep. I mean, that, that, yeah, I, I, I have no idea how it's going to play out, but yep. it is certainly quite relevant and, and there is a lot going on there. And, and uh, it, is, it is an exciting new technology to have uh, crypto money, so to speak, issued by whoever it is. Um, so that's that's one to absolutely watch. The other one is what is going to happen at the online point of sale. Uh, as we move shopping online, it creates all sorts of new type of, of opportunities, uh, like like extending credit at the point of sale, uh, integrating it into the shopping experience, and all these type of things. Um, there's a whole host of new players like Shopify, Klarna, and and others that are that are entering that field, or, or at the end for that matter, huge valuations I mean, in the in the in the in the hundreds of billions in the, in some cases. So I think what's what's happening at the online point of sale with online merchants would be the other area to to watch for. Thank thank you, Natasha. Any particular themes you're focusing on or areas of activity? And as with Godfrey, it could be a full time job just keeping up with CBDC. <laughs> Yeah, reading all the reading all the reports that come out in discussion papers is a full time job. Yeah. Yes, and uh, so and that is really really fascinating. I think that's probably the most fascinating thing. I think the account to account um, and open banking is. I mean, that's going to be more country specific, um, much more country specific, but that's fascinating to look at in 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 all of its areas in sort of. Security questions, liability questions, which I think will come more and more to the forefront. If we want people to, or if banks want people to use a, make account to account payments, then they're going to have to come up with a pretty compelling, straightforward answer to who's liable for what when. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't think that's clear today, certainly not in the UK. Gottfried and Natasha, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to me. I really enjoyed your book, The Payoff. How Changing the Way We Pay Changes Everything, and I look forward to staying in touch. Thank you, Paul. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the New Money Review podcast, The Future of Money in 30 Minutes. If you enjoyed this podcast, please like it, share it, or tell a friend about it. At our website, newmoneyreview.com, you can also sign up to our newsletter, which will keep you informed of all New Money Review articles and podcasts. If you'd like to support us, you can do so via Patreon or using cryptocurrency. Details of how to do this are on the homepage of our website in the right column. Finally, please join us soon for our next episode.